Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us this wonderful Sunday morning. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to gather as your people to learn more about you, to learn about what's in your word. And we pray, Father, that again, as we look at whatever questions we want to tackle this morning, that we would simply not just be interested in learning something academically, but that we would be able to see Jesus Christ on every page of the Bible, that we would be able to see your hand and you at work since the very beginning of time, always for the good of your people. May that move us to gratitude and move us to greater love for you and for our fellow man. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, folks, we are ready to start. And, um, well, we have a very light crowd. After the first two weeks, I guess you asked all the questions and you figured there's not much left to talk about. All right, this is Coffee and Questions. This is where you ask the questions. You're in charge of Sunday school. You set the agenda. So, um, what do you guys got? Third coffee and questions of the year. Is this like like the Wednesday when you're working in a week? It's the middle, and you know, and everybody's like, uh Matt, jump in. What do we got? It's a good good question. Uh, part of the problem with you know, like when we translate scripture, we've actually talked about this before. The challenge is people learn certain forms, right? Apostles' Creed, Doxology, Gloria Patri. Uh, all sorts of other things, Ten Commandments. Um, we learn certain forms, uh, and that's in Scripture, and things that are outside of Scripture as well, like the Gloria Patri. Um, and the problem with that is as language changes, we're less apt to change those forms. Um, and so you get language in the Lord's Prayer that, you know, hallowed be your name. Hallowed means nothing to us today. Nobody uses it at all. It's not used in any any other context. Um, except in the Lord's Prayer. But it was a word that was used uh, regularly 400 years ago, and so it's that same sort of thing. So the, um, what you get then with world without end, which I'm guessing is the part you said you did not understand. That or as it was in the beginning, and now and ever shall be. Okay, as it was in the beginning, so, it's, so the whole song, right, is giving glory to the Father. He's always been, is, and always shall be. You know, all these things that we said to him, glory to him has always been, We want it to continue on into the future. World without end is just an expression meaning forever. That's all it means. It's it's for as long as, as you know, we want it to be God is the one who we glorify. From now, forevermore. That's all it basically says. The problem is how do you rewrite that? I mean, take the other one, the doxology, right? And we have the word Holy Ghost. No, it's in this one that we have Holy Ghost, sorry. Right? And, um... The problem that we have with that is if you put in Holy Spirit, the, the, uh, um, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The rhythm is not the right word. Yeah, it's too many syllables, so whatever the cadence is, is off. You'd have to say Holy Spirit instead of Holy Ghost, you know. And, and, and songs do sometimes do that in English, uh, which is one of the first things as I switched because I didn't start going into English-speaking churches until I was 23. It was always Spanish-speaking because you have to learn the language of heaven first. And um, uh, this crowd. Uh, (laughs) But one of the things that really caught my attention when I started singing all the hymns in English is how often they have these contractions. You know, Ian, you mean even, Ian or whatever. And all that. But you can't contract spirit. You can't say sprit, right, and that kind of thing. So 
that's where you're, you get caught. Well, I think what it really takes is some top-notch musicians. We've got them to uh, think this through and, and rewrite them. Um, I know somebody has done something with the Gloria Patri and has changed worlds without end to something like forevermore or for all ages, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't remember where I saw it. It's been years. But it'd be interesting to either find that stuff or to rewrite it. I mean, we've got the talent right here in this room. But good question. Does that answer that? Okay. Chelsea Schleifer, welcome. That's a very good question. So we're, several names immediately in the New Testament come to mind. You mentioned Priscilla, wife of Aquila. Uh, we have Phoebe, who is mentioned as a, could be translated deaconess. And we have Lydia, right, in Acts chapter 14. So uh, let's take a look at that. First, let me say this. Um, this is not a on-off switch. This is not a binary sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's very important to say. We live in a, in a day and age right now uh, where women are being canceled, as you, you already know that. I mean, literally, uh, uh, men are taking the literal role of women, uh, not just in, 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 like, oh, in the workplace, but in the home and the whole domestic stuff. It, it is absolute craziness. Our culture can't see it because it belongs to the evil one, as Scripture says. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we belong to the prince of the power of the air, we being, you know, the world, not us. Uh, in fact, that's the whole idea is that we've been translated out of that. The world can't see it. But anybody who has the eyes of a believer is able to step back and see that the attempt here is always to undermine God's created order and to flip it. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, the temptation was to flip God's created order, and it has been that from the very, very beginning. So the reason I say that is it's very easy to sit there and say the Scripture has some very clear, unambiguous um, statements about who can be an elder and who can be a pastor. All right, it's very, very clear. So much so, and I'm, I'm working my way towards where we're going, that when liberalism, liberal policies, progressive, you know, whatever in the church started grabbing a hold on this front, started grabbing the hold of the church in the 1910s as a whole. But when I started grabbing the church in practice, because they said in the 1910s, we're not going to change any of our practice, but it always happens that if you change your belief, you will eventually change your practice because you practice as you believe, right? So by the time the 60s and 70s came around, they began to have to, the liberal theologians had to wrestle with those texts of Paul primarily that talk about male leadership in the church. And the hermeneutical gymnastics that they had to do in trying to interpret scripture and so on were, they, they filled libraries, and then uh, conservative scholars would respond, and it kind of went back and forth. About the 90s, that changed. So there's a reason why it changed. I think, is, again, we have to be very self-aware. What was happening in the 90s? A movement that started in the 1930s and 1940s, finally, as all movements, they started something academic. By the 1990s, it was becoming mainstream. What movement am I talking about? Postmodernism was starting to grab a hold of things. By the time that we get to the 90s, the churches, liberal churches, decided there's no need to longer try to justify those texts and come up with ways of explaining what Paul really meant. We're just going to ignore them. So 
you know, all these attempts at trying to explain what they really meant, you just ignore it. It's just a patriarchal culture. He's wrong. And the scripture now, you can just literally ignore it. That's been the case for about 30 years now. I'm putting this, all this into, into context. So we have pushed back against all these different views. The real error, in which we fall into quite a bit uh, to our shame, is that after we've shut that down, we have absolutely no room to then explain the proper role of women within Scripture. And it is much more than simply stay at home and take care of your kids, shut up and be quiet, right? Scripture very, very clearly has a role for women as for men within the family. And for both men and women, didn't hear not hear me say women's primary role is in the family. For both men and women, their primary role is within the family. They are different roles, but they have that role within there. Very, very important. But men have other things that they can do beyond the family, and likewise, women have other things they can do beyond the family, and that includes within the church. However, even that is still predicated on the primacy of their roles within the family. So you don't swap one for the other. You don't sit there and say, for example, as a pastor, right, so let's just take that one. We're saying uh, elders, pastors. So the pastor uh, is uh, going to be a male. Uh, That's open to me. So I can, and there's all sorts of responsibilities and things the scripture says about being a pastor. I cannot do that to the exclusion or in place of or um, setting aside my role as a father and a husband. Does that make sense? So once we've established that, that same thinking applies for ladies. There's quite a bit that ladies can do. And then within the church, uh, we see some of those pictures with Lydia, with uh, Phoebe, and um, with uh, um, uh, Priscilla, who sometimes is called Prissa. If you ever see that, don't get hung up. It's just uh, in in, uh, the language of their day. That's in Latin. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla are both Italian names, they're both Latin names. Um, That's just a shortening, just like we might, you know, have somebody who's called Melissa and then we call her Missy or something of that nature. So now we've said that I can answer that question and say that there's a lot more in uh, in Scripture uh, than sometimes we give credit for. And we need women to be able to exercise their God-given gifts, uh, not just in the home, but in the church and to make full use of them. Does that mean mean that women could not take leadership positions? Yes and no. There are plenty of ways in which women can and do lead. And some of those are going to just get the obvious ones out of the way, right? Doesn't mean that it has to be, but we have ladies pretty much handling everything in the kitchen. Oh, of course, the kitchen, because that's where you want women to be, is in the kitchen, First of all, you go with what people are naturally good at. Now, some men are really good in the kitchen, but a lot of women are, and it tends to gravitate, okay, that way. Does every woman end up working in the kitchen? No, but there are some women who want to be there. We did not assign them. We did not limit them and say, you know, that kind of thing. They want to be there. So you know what I say? Have at it. Use your God-given gifts. You show your love to this church by cooking and by preparing and all that. So we have a lot of ladies who handle what's going on in the kitchen. But it goes beyond that. We have women who teach, women who disciple other women. Uh, So here's teaching roles, you know, so this idea that a woman can never teach, right? We have uh, the cutest girl in the house who is our um, uh, coordinator of church ministries. 
you know, Mary Jo serves in that role. Most, you know, many churches would sit there and say, you can't have a woman in that position. Well, why not? Is it a leadership position? Well, anybody who's worked at this church knows that we just work here. Mary Jo runs the place. So you give her, because she's good at what she does, or Donald Banyan used to be in that role, and whoever else may someday be in that role, you let them do their thing. Do they have supervision? Sure, they have supervision. It doesn't necessarily mean that you, you know, leading does not mean that you don't answer to anyone. So all that to say is the only things that we see in Scripture that are forbidden to women and are meant exclusively for men is the spiritual leadership, i.e., the elders. And then we look at deacons, and we see the same thing in terms of that office. So let's take that one at first. So... Um, to not, re, uh, to not re-preach when I did First Timothy about three or four years ago. The church is, ba- the, the, the structure of the church, the leadership structure of the church is based on the leadership structure of the family. That's the message all throughout First Timothy is that the church is based on the family. And so in the same way that the men are to serve as the head of the home, and you know that that is a partnership between the husband and wife does not mean that the wife is inferior and We've talked about that many times. Does not mean that she's supposed to be three steps behind the husband, you know, and all that, which different cultures have done, including ours at different times, does not mean that they are equal with different roles in that partnership of working uh, with, you know, in the family. The same thing happens in the church. Um, that said, there are many other roles, and so we see. Um, oh, let's, so I wanted to go back. So, elders then very clearly talks about being men because of that reason. How about deacons? If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, it also says that they are to be uh, um, uh, men, except when you get to verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Somebody might want to take a look at that just to double check. So 1 Timothy, and and 1 Timothy 3, uh, there's a little bit at the end, but the most of it is basically the qualifications for elders and deacons. That's the chapter that you turn to. So verses 1 through 7 are for the elder, and then 8 through, um, I was wrong, 8 through 11, no, I was right, it is verse 11, 8 through 13 is the the deacons, and then, and uh, so deacons likewise must be dignified and so on, so it's basically setting it up as a parallel, no liberal looks at this passage and thinks that 8, 9, and 10 have, uh, can be um, for both sexes, every, even the liberals say that's talking about men, then verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And then it picks up with men again in verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, and it can pretty much mirrors what the elders say. Now, that verse 11 is a little, um, I don't want to say controversial, but a little harder to translate because the word that's translated there for wife is also the same word for woman. So some people are saying that what Paul is doing is he's talking about male deacons, verses 8 through 10. Then in verse 11, he describes female deaconesses. And then in verses 12 and 13, he goes back to male deacons. That's, it's, it's not pretty. Is it technically, grammatically possible? Technically, it's grammatically possible because the word gune, from which we get, you know, um, gynecology and all those other things that stuff it's a greek word for woman which also can stand for wife so it's grammatically possible it's sloppy it doesn't seem to be the way it works 
the reason the ESV and many translated wives is because that fits the context better. Also, the very next verse, Paul again says they are to, uh, deacons are to be the husband of but one, same word, gune, wife. And you tend to look from the context and you tend to say, Paul probably is not going to switch meanings here. He just said wife, talking about elder. Now he gets to verse 11, he talks about the wife of the deacon, and then he continues talking about the wife of the deacon. By the way, you're asking, why is there a mention of wives made in deacons, uh, the description for the deacons, not for the elders? Very simple. An elder can exercise his spiritual rule without the, the we don't have female elderettes. We don't have, you know, pastoras and that kind of thing, as we used to do in the Spanish community where the, the the, the wife of the pastor automatically became, you know, the equivalent of another authority figure. We don't have that. But deacons play a different role. In this day especially where they were visiting the widows, and we know from the next chapter, uh, two chapters later, chapter five, many of those widows, because people died young, were marriageable, if you want to put it that way. In other words, they were still active. And you don't want the deacon to show up to take care of that person and she's looking good, and she's lonely, and so in the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, wives, accompany the deacons and, and help them in a lot of the different roles. Okay, so that's explaining elders and deacons. How do we look at Romans 16.1, I'm sorry, Romans 16.2, and deal with Phoebe the deaconess? Wait a minute. Okay, so we can have several things. We can, um, we can say that when it mentions, and Paul's just giving out greetings, and he mentions Phoebe. Uh, in fact, Matt, since uh, you're flipping pages, can you read that when you get there? 16.2, I'm pretty sure is where it's at. Uh, I guess we do need verse 1, where she's mentioned, sorry. Okay, so Phoebe, this is what translation? ESV, a servant of the church. The word there is the word diakonos from which we get deacon. Okay, so let's take a step back. What are our options? We can sit there and say, uh, clearly she is a deacon as in the office of deacon. Therefore, we can look to 1 Timothy 3 and explain that and say what's happening in 1 Timothy 3 verse 11 is it must be, as awkward as it is, it must be Paul talking about female deacons. So we can, we can say that, and there are some people who do say that. There are some reformed people who say that. Okay, uh, for example, one of our sister denominations, a small denomination called the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, they are the Psalms only guys, you know, no instruments and that kind of stuff. They have female deaconesses and they justify it the way I've just said. The vast majority of other elders, uh, of other um, conservative reformed have said no to that. I say that because there's some question because grammatically, you can make that argument. I, now, most of us think, myself included, it's a very weak argument. And here's the reason why. We already explained uh, 1 Timothy 3.11. It just makes a whole lot more sense uh, in context to describe that as a wife of a deacon and not, an, not a woman deacon. How do we explain Romans 16.1 and 2? Very, very simply. The word diakonos, you know, when we talk about elders as a spiritual office, the word elder has a meaning beyond uh, a religious leader, right? You can look at your elders, trust your elders, listen to your elders, elderly people. The word existed before and is then adapted to spiritual office because of the role of being 
wiser, elderly people supposedly wiser, and so therefore you're spiritual leaders, that kind of thing, right? We can all make that jump. Same thing happens with deacon. The word here for minister, for servant. Now there's two different words in the New Testament used for servant. Uh, One is a word literally for slave, and you see that used quite a few times. When Paul talks about he is the slave of Christ, some translation says, I am, I am a servant of Christ. Literally, he is saying he is the slave. It's the word doulos in Greek. And so it means that you are a slave. Minister, diakonos, is a little different. It's the same way that the word is used um, in Europe, primarily. Uh, it could be also in Latin America. For government positions. Minister of defense. Minister of whatever. It's a person who serves and who is there to assist someone else. Even the prime minister, you think, well, all those cabinet minister of defense and minister of, uh, of this and that, they're there to serve the prime minister. Even the prime minister, the name means the first minister, and he's there to serve the king or the queen, you know, whatever the case may be. And in those few places where they don't have kings or queens, I actually don't know of any prime minister. Is there a prime minister that has no king or queen, even if it's in the... Okay, yeah, so there's, at that point, they're just picking up. But even then, the, the idea is that there is, they, they respond to the Knesset um, because they, they, unlike in the U.S., uh, prime ministers are not part of an executive branch. In fact, there is no executive branch. They're out of the legislative branch, um, and their job is to execute whatever the legislative branch puts into place. But that's what the word means, minister to serve somebody else. And so deacons, then, we take that official term and we use it in the church for this group of people that we read about in Acts chapter 6 when it's instituted to come alongside the elders and assist and to help them accomplish their role. So the answer then in Romans 16 too is that she's being recognized for what she is, an excellent servant of the church, a woman who has done so much according to that description in verse 2, but that does not mean that the official office of deacon. Does that make sense? Okay. We're just about out of time. And yet there's, now it's only setting the stage. What do we say about Lydia? Lydia is never said to be in a a leadership position and she does not lead the church. It simply says that it meets in her house. She is wealthier than the other people in Philippi. You'll read about this in Acts chapter uh, 14. Um, I'm sorry, 16. I've been saying 14 all along. Uh, Chapter 16 in in Acts. Um, She is wealthier than the rest. She is Uh, a leader in the sense that she runs her own business, which was uh, not as uncommon as you might think in the Roman Empire. Very often when a husband had died or or something of that nature, or there was a a single daughter who inherits the business of um, and the estate of her father and there was no one else to pass it on to, they were allowed to run those things and do it. By the way, the same thing in Israel. Ah, that's a story for another day. But um, so she has that estate. She runs whether she got it from her husband or her dad, whatever, but she runs it. She has a merchant business. She's wealthier. She probably has the resources that the others don't have for meeting. They meet in her house, but it's not stated that she leads the church. So there's that. Again, there is a leadership role in that and that she makes herself available and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of opportunities for her to serve there. The biggest one is when we get to Prissa and Aquila because it's very clear that uh, Prissa is doing the teaching, the explaining, and that kind of thing, um, right? So they, they meet up with Apollos. Apollos is 
uh, a Jew who is very, uh, he's a Greek Jew, which means he doesn't live in Israel. He's out in the Hellenistic world, that is in the Greco-Roman world. He's well-trained in, in all the rhetoric and the Greek and everything else. Um, and he is arguing about, you know, um, uh, all the things that good Christians would be at, but he hadn't heard about Christ yet. And so the gospel gets to him, and of course, everything starts to fall into place, but not everything is absolutely clear. So Prissa and Aquila take him aside, and they say, this is what you're missing. This is the, the stuff that's been going on that you haven't heard about, and let us tell you about it. And it seems that Prissa takes the lead. Nothing wrong with that, because she is not assuming spiritual leadership over Apollos. She's not claiming to be the elder. Pris, uh, Aquila is with her all the time. Now, that's been taken to mean that sometimes you'll see in a church a woman gets up and teaches from the pulpit and there'll be an elder standing next to her. Yeah, it's kind of silly. I know what they're trying to do is to say the woman can speak and the elder is over her or her husband is over her. Yeah, once you enter into the pulpit a role that is set aside for spiritual leadership, then you can finagle it however you want, but once you get up there and you start unpacking the word of God, you are taking spiritual oversight of the people. But in a private setting, uh, I'm going to give you a perfect example. Anybody who's been in any of my premarital counseling will know that I often use this one family as an example. I don't mention their name to not you know, embarrass them. They're a wonderful family. They will be embarrassed because I'm complimenting them, not because uh, we're exposing them. But he is a very competent man. He's an elder in the church. Uh, not here. Um, an accountant very godly man, uh, capable man. His wife outshines him in every way, in every way. Um, Her education surpasses him, formal education. Her actual education, you know, what she actually knows, because it's two different things. You can be well-educated and still ignorant. Uh, Just look at our, okay, I'm not going to say anything. Um, She is much, much smarter than he is. Um, She's much more capable than he is, all across the board. But I did say he's a godly man and a wise man. So he doesn't feel threatened because that's his wife. She's for him, not against him, right? He recognizes that. So what he does is he liberates her to use and exercise her gifts. Uh, The church in which they serve at, uh, she leads the counseling for all the women in the church. Uh, at times, she has done a job similar to that of Mary Jo, where she uh, was, they call them all their DCM, Director of Church Ministries in that church. She served in a lot of different capacities. The beauty is watching them together. She always knows how to submit to him without um, taking his role. But he's smart enough to trust her. He can still maintain that role of saying, the buck stops here in the headship of my family. But that doesn't mean I have to do everything. I can delegate and I can trust my wife to do these things excellently, like Proverbs 31 tells us about, right? So you can have situations like that. And in fact, that's what we want to cultivate. We want to recognize the, the um, um, that's what I'm looking for, capabilities, not just giftedness, but you know, the capabilities of our women. We want to unleash that. We want to you know, uh, let, let them serve in all sorts of different capacities. And not just simply say, because you can't be an elder or, or a deacon in, the, in those official positions, that there's no role other than stay in your lane, right? When your lane is defined as 
raise kids and never leave the house. And we're the first ones to say that's your primary responsibility, just like the man's primary responsibility is also family. Does that answer that? Is that helpful at all? I mean, this is, uh, we're done. I mean, it's already past 10.15. I'm going to pray. But this is the kind of stuff that basically, quite frankly, you know, could fill a whole semester. And I've tried to just bash it all together. There may be more questions running through your mind. Hang on to them. Bring them back next week. And uh, we'll pick it up. A very good question it gives us a lot of stuff to run with. All right, let me go ahead and close this with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that in Genesis it makes it very clear that you created mankind, both male and female, both made it in your image, both of the equal value and dignity in that we equally reflect the God who created us, and yet with different roles. The sexes are indeed different in that regard. And we thank you, Father, for the beauty of the creation design that you've well, of, of, the, of the design that you created. Our culture always wants to upend that. It always wants to erase those distinctions or to make them uh, so exaggerated to the point of breaking them. And Lord, uh, we pray that you give us eyes to see what Scripture teaches, eyes to see the ways in which the evil one is at work in our culture, and to be bold and firm in our standing up for the biblical design for men and women. Um, we need it. Our children so desperately uh, depend on us getting those things right. And we pray, Lord, that even this brief discussion will help us to be able to, uh, to think clearly on the matter. Give us wisdom, uh, charity where needed, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.